Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Welcome to the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons Young Arthroplasty Group podcast, The Augment. I'm Anna Cohen-Rosenblum, an academic orthopedic surgeon at Louisiana State University, where our department mascot is an alligator with an articulating antibiotic spacer. I have no conflicts of interest with any devices we may discuss during this episode. I'm Jenna Bernstein, an academic orthopedic surgeon at Yale University, but making the jump into the world of private practice with Connecticut Orthopedics. I also have no conflicts of interest with any devices discussed during this episode. And I'm David Landy, an academic orthopedic surgeon at the University of Kentucky, and I'm wondering whether Anna's alligator had a preoperative anemia workup. I also have no conflicts of interest with any of the devices discussed during this episode. With us today is Dr. Ron Schwartzkopf, who's a professor of orthopedic surgery at NYU Langone and holds the title of Director of the Research Center for the Division of Adult Reconstructive Surgery. He's also an Associate Program Director of the Orthopedic Surgery Residency at NYU, which is the largest orthopedic residency in the country. He's also the chair of the AUKUS Research Committee. His undergraduate and medical school training was done in Israel at Ben-Gurion University. He did his residency training at NYU, during which it was still called the Hospital for Joint Diseases, and then a fellowship in adult reconstruction at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Most importantly, Dr. Schwarzkopf is a personal mentor of mine, and I'm excited to, for us to speak with him today on the podcast. To start off with a hard-hitting question, who is your favorite fellow of all time, and why was it me? So my favorite fellow, uh, Dr. <laughs> Jenna Bernstein, uh, the reason she endeared to my heart is her ability to uh, absorb my uh, bluntness and uh, return that bluntness. But I think I still made her a few times pause before responding. Great answer. Great answer. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to move on to talk about one of your studies, Dr. Schwarzkopf, the impact of preoperative anemia severity on primary total hip arthroplasty outcomes, which was published in the Journal of Arthroplasty's April 2022 issue. So just a brief overview for more details, uh, you can read the whole paper, which we're going to link to in the show notes, but it's a retrospective review of over a thousand primary total hip patients, single institution, analyzing preoperative hemoglobin values and outcomes when compared with the control group of patients sort of without preop anemia. They used stratification of preop anemia into mild which was 11 to 11.9 for women or 11 to 12.9 for men, moderate, eight to 10 grams per deciliter and severe less than eight. They found that the moderate anemia group had increased length of stay compared with the control group and the severe anemia group had higher length of stay as well as readmission and revision rates compared with controls. And they also noted a greater proportion of female patients in the moderate and severe anemia groups. So just Going through this study, which I found really interesting and important given the patient populations we treat, the conclusion of the study mentions a recommendation suggesting that all patients with a pre-op hemoglobin under 11 be referred to hematology for workup. So I wanted to ask you kind of, how does that work in your practice? Is it different for hips versus knees, primaries versus revisions? How far out do you get these pre-op labs so that you don't have hematology workup potentially delay a procedure? A lot of patients sometimes have labs before or are aware they have anemia, but we try and get the labs from three months before. So currently 90 days is uh, our window. So it all depends when you see the patient in your office and how soon you book him. 
We also have the ability now in our PAT to do really quick IV iron treatment. So we just have a quick turnaround through hematology and we can give them IV iron and we see changes within a week after giving that dose. So it's really about seeing what's the cause of the anemia because you'll be surprised if you find people that have uh, colon cancer by finding that they're an anemic or having something else. So it's not so much that you have to change your hemoglobin level, it's to figure out if this is something chronic. For example, I had a patient I operated that had a hemoglobin of eight last week, but that's where the patient has been living for the past 10 years, followed by hematologists. And we just have to be aware of that and know that the patient has more risk of complications and readmissions and so forth. So we put more attention in the patient. We use some extra hemostasis devices during the operation. We try and go a little bit quicker. Dentists really drop the blood pressure to control the bleeding and so forth. So it's a combination of knowing what the patient is so you can prepare and also figuring out if this is something acute. All of a sudden, patient has an acute anemia prior to surgery. And those are the patients you really want to work out because those are the ones you'll have surprises. Yeah, that's great. And also related to what you were saying about that patient with the hemoglobin of eight. So I was surprised reading it that there were even 34 patients with that severe anemia of less than eight. So what to you, sort of what would be an indication to do an elective primary hip replacement in someone with a severe anemia like that? Sometimes you have cancer patients that do to different treatments. They're, they live in chronic anemia. The last patient I did have the history of a lung transplant, and that's what her body is able to do, and that's the level that her body's been living. So it's usually patients that have chronic diseases. It's not somebody that has uh, iron deficiency anemia. Uh, and is dropping down to eight. Those are the ones you want to bring up to 10 and 11, and you can uh, in probably in a few weeks or a, a month or two. But more people with chronic diseases, chronic illnesses that have uh, very chronic anemia, and there's nothing they can do. They've been living like that, and there's no way to bring it up. You just have to be aware and be ready. So for patients with a moderate anemia right now, what is your protocol if you, you know, they're worked up, are they primary? They have iron deficiency. Are you delaying that case and treating them? Has this study been practice changing at all for you? So we're starting to do the IV iron. So patients that come with a moderate level and have a few weeks before surgery, we just, we give them a few doses of IV iron. And then do they have to retest and come up or you just give the IV iron and say, okay, well, now we've treated, we're just going to do the surgery. We do another test just so we also have a, a point and see how well uh, we did that. But we've been finding that it's very good to give that little push for people that are moderate and to bring them to low level. Yeah. To mild. I hope you're planning a study before and after the iron protocol. That would be interesting to see. I'm sure you know I am. <laughs> I was a softball there. All right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that would be great. And that would be a great thing to try and enact in a lot of different centers and see how that works. That's awesome. All right. So next we're going to discuss comparing the efficacy of articulating spacer constructs for knee periprosthetic joint infection eradication. All cement versus real component spacers. Uh, this was published in 2021 in the Journal of Arthroplasty. In this study, Dr. Schwarzkopf and colleagues retrospectively reviewed patients receiving an articulating knee spacer for the management of a periprosthetic knee infection at three major academic hospitals from 2011 to 2020. 164 cases were identified and divided into two comparison groups based on whether a real component spacer or an all cement spacer was used. Patients receiving a real component spacer were slightly older and had slightly increased range of motion preoperatively, but were otherwise similar with respect to demographic, clinical, and infectious characteristics. The authors found that the spacer type was not obviously associated with patients progressing 
to reimplantation or the time to reimplantation. Though patients in the all cement spacer group had a longer hospital day following spacer placement by over two days, lost nearly 20 degrees more range of motion with their spacer, and were more than twice as likely to undergo additional surgery prior to reimplantation. Importantly, though, the authors found that the spacer type was not associated with reinfection after reimplantation, which was 9% in the real component spacer group compared to 13% in the all cement spacer group. The spacer type was also not associated with final change in range of motion, though the all cement spacer group had a longer hospitalization after reimplantation by two days. The authors concluded that both the real component and all cement spacers can be effective options in the management of periprosthetic knee infections. So my first question for you, Dr. Schwarzkopf, was, you know, what was the impetus to do the study? You know, were you more motivated by the potential for differences in range of motion or hospital stay, or was it more a concern that one of the spacer types might have a less uh, infection control? So I think it was uh, that from a clinical pers- uh, outcome, surgery outcome, ease of use and least amount of complication, the feeling was that the real component was a better option. And then the other side was to prove that the real component does not have increased risk because we are putting metal in there. So we don't want to have metal, but we have the history of doing it in the hip with the prostolac implant, people using real implants and just cementing them lousy and putting them in there in all poly cemented cup side. So this is the same theory. Uh, I use a femoral implant. I actually use a CR implant and I actually screw out the lug screws. So I kind of don't want to violate any new bone. I don't want to cut bone that I don't need to. Uh, I don't want to put any stress. And I put an all poly tibia, which I also tend to cut part of the keel off to make it easier so it's not too deep with dowels up and down. And I find that it gives a very stable knee. It's not perfect. You know, some of my friends and colleagues out there do a much more balanced real component spacer, put more time, they fill out different things, they balance flexion extension. I don't do a lot of that. I just basically put the same femur size back more or less and put a tibia that gives me full extension without hyperextension. Um, cause I can't play with the flexion gap too much, right? It's like, I can just play on the tibia side and I tend to put them in a hinge brace, uh, not a Bledsoe, a simple hinge return to play kind of to give them a little bit of varus and valgo stability when they're walking, they don't sleep with that. The ease of taking out, it's very easy to take out. I found doing hundred of those that there's almost minimal bone loss. When I take it out, I don't feel I haven't had yet a case where the tibia got spit out or something broke or something dislocated, which happens a lot with all cement implants. There's a lot of pictures everywhere of them fracturing or dislodging or something happens that you don't want it to happen because they're not really meant for full weight bearing. That's the main thing. So it sounds like you're not sort of transitioning to a one and a half stage or destination spacer just yet. No, I'm, I'm not doing a good enough job that I think this will last. I never had one come loose. Always when I go back to the OR, I have to separate the cement implant thing. They could continue using it, but I don't make it, uh, it's a little sloppy for any, right? It's a CR that probably needs to be an, uh, a PS now or a high post because you debrided the PCL and so forth. So it's not, I don't make it that well, no, because I don't, I yet to have a patient that I didn't want them to come back that I thought this, it's not too much for them. Okay. And one of the other reasons we, we wanted to select this article was kind of the multi-institutional nature of it. I'm hoping you could tell us a little bit about, you know, how did you select the other groups for the study? Did everyone have kind of similar beliefs coming in or did you reach out to them? So the groups that you have here, you have Antonia Chen from Brigham. And I think Yale University had a very strong uh, representative. Her name is Dr. Bernstein. 
And she was my fellow at the time. So th these are not patients from Yale. And we have the other hospital in uh, Boston. So we basically got it from the campuses that belong to partners, MGH and Brigham. So I have a lot of other studies that I do with some other uh, researchers like Thorsten Seiler from Duke and uh, groups from Iowa and other places, Cleveland Clinic. We kind of developed this kind of collaboration of kind of people in the same time in practice, same place in research. And we have questions that we don't have enough numbers to answer. Like in the MSIS meeting this week, there'll be a presentation of an outcome of girdle stones. You know, how many girdle stones does one institution have? Doesn't matter how big. So you bring those things together. Yeah, I know at Yale, they have a lot of girdle stones. I think at LSU, they have quite I, a I was going to say, we're a girdle stone center of excellence. That's that uh, we're getting yeah. our certification soon. <laughs> it sounds like we need to form a research consortium, guys. So you can join ours <laughs> if you really want. But, uh, but I think that's the main thing for young people in research. You know, you have a few cases, but you don't have enough. You get a few well-minded people that want to work together. And you get work done and uh, you share data. You just have to do the data sharing agreements, the IRBs in each institution. And you get used to it. It's not that hard. And your research center learns how to do it and it becomes easy to do. Especially centers we're learning now, if you have, if everyone has Epic, if I want to do a data pool, I just share the code and they use the exact same code. So they get the exact same data in the same way. So it's very easy to combine data. Any other questions on this one, guys? I'm going to ask you, I'm assuming you uh, let them fully weight bear because it sounds like you put them in a brace for the stability, but you let them fully weight bear on there, which is another advantage over the cement spacers, I think. Yeah, full weight bearing, no, no real limitations. I tell them to take it slow the first two weeks so everything kind of heal, but then there's no real limitation. I don't want them to do impact stuff. I'm not going to let them go ski, but they can do as much walking as they want, as much bicycle as they want. And have you ever had someone not want the second stage? I had people wait a long time. I can't recall somebody asked me that today. If I ever had someone that never came back, I'm not sure. I don't think so, but could be that I didn't notice somebody sneaked. You mentioned putting together the data sharing agreements and starting kind of a research consortium. And I think that for a lot of new surgeons in practice, whether they're in private practice trying to keep track of their own cases or whether they're in academics, starting a research program can be very intimidating and challenging. Can you talk about how NYU's program and arthroplasty got built up and what you think like the important first steps are to, to move towards that. So I don't think the NYU program is an example for somebody in a private practice because you need a lot of money and our program has eight paid people in the arthroplasty research center with usually three or four full year volunteers and NYU medical students and other volunteers. So it's a little army. You know, five uh, clinical fellows that need projects, 72 residents that some of them want to go into arthroplasty. So those are resources you can't really adapt. Uh, if you're in a private practice, I think you have to learn how to do an IRB in your institution. Just learn how to do one. Uh, I think you can start from different things. You can either do a small randomized study, just your own patient. You randomize your own patient, a very interesting question or a technique. I do half this, half that. And it's a uh, you can, if you use robot, you can do half the patient's CR, half PS with a robot, half kinematic, half not. There's a lot of things that no one ever done that you can do as a one person. And if you want to give data, let's say you have an idea and you have, a, you know, I have 10 patients, but we need a hundred. So then you do an IRB and you prepare those 10 and you come to other people and say, listen, I have 10. I want to contribute. I want to, let's do this research project. And I have people in private practices that, that uh, contribute data, but you need to be able to do an IRB. You need to be able to do a data sharing agreement from between the hospitals. You need to be able to pull your own data because no one's going to come. And what about someone like Anna, who's at an academic 
institution looking to build, you know, further the research there? I mean, what's suggestion for getting started with building her own army? So building your own <laughs> army starts from medical students that want to get into orthopedics. So some of them are very talented. You find a few that really have the nick for doing research and you can get them going. Now that step one doesn't have a score, then you have them for more years because they're not all stressed for step one. Before that, somewhere in the second year, you lost them. So now you can use them for more years and get them involved and prepare them for residency. You have your own residents, but residents usually can't pull a lot of data from charts. They can write stuff. So the medical student, the resident, sometimes a good combination. Then you have to get some funding. Uh, if you want to bring somebody paid, either from your institution can give you funding, or you go funding from RIF, Knee Society, Hip Society, ACAS has the FAIR grant, but that barely pays for a salary of a research person. Unless you go for NIH grants that have a lot of money, some federal funding, the other option is industry. Industry is constantly looking for people to help them do their prospective studies. Industry now needs to report to the US and to Europe, especially in Australia, England, two-year results, five-year results. So even a new implant that comes out in the US needs two-year results with PROMs in order to get approved in the UK or in Europe. They need surgeons to collect that data and do those studies and they pay. So they'll pay for one or two people to do the study on your end, but that those people can do other stuff. They have more time available for them. So, and then you start building on that. Oh, that's great. In terms of the army building, how do you deal with the high turnover, right? You have med students graduating, residents leaving. Is there a sort of system you have of institutional memory where the leaving residents or the leaving students can mentor the ones coming in? So you make sure you have consistency. You so so I, 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 have, I have somebody that manages our research center that he doesn't leave. And then we have a new hire, the new one to help run the prospective uh, sponsor trials. It's not going to leave, but that's from the sponsor. And then we have the research fellows that come and go every year. Now and again, we have two years. Uh, somebody that doesn't match into orthopedics and wants to do a research, we only accept them if they come for two years, not one year, because it's not enough time to get anything on their CV or change anything, right? You, you don't get in, you start in July and September, you apply again. So that doesn't work. So you have to take two years if, you, if you're unmatched and we think we can help you match. We try and avoid taking people that we don't think will ever match into orthopedics. I, you know, the one somebody to put in this time where we can't help him get to his dream. And we just make sure. So every project we do with a research, with a resident and a clinical fellow, we have them shadowed in that project. There's always a research fellow that's uh, tagged in that project. And that's kind of somebody from the base that's making sure the resident or fellow or, not, or medical student are not losing track. And then when we have research fellows leaving on the last month, they're kind of putting everything together for their leaving. They kind of decide, this is what I'm going to finish. This is what I'm going to take with me and finish when I'm not here. And this is what I want to hand over. And those get hand over to the new research fellows that come in. Yeah, I will say at NYU, it seemed like the consistency of having, you know, Dan and the team there that was very stable really helped with that. And I, I found that to be a, a big difference in other places that I've trained and worked. You did mention, you know, in getting involved with industry and industry research for sponsorship. Will you talk a little bit more about how you get involved with and really what the steps are to get more involved with industry-related research? So there's different kinds of industry-related research. You can do a investigator-initiate study. A lot of companies, you can submit a proposal for a study. For example, we're doing a study with Ethicon looking at different closures for revisions and look at the quality of the scar and wound healing. So we propose the study. A lot of times they advertise that they want investigator-initiate studies and we propose and it was uh, sponsored or eighty or $90,000, and usually that can cover almost an FT of a lower-ranked research fellow for a year, for example, and that study doesn't occupy the whole year. 
and every company has those investigator initiated. The other option is uh, when companies want you to do a study in your place, like the VAC study that they did for revisions across the country and wanted people to do a randomized study of use of VAC or non-VAC and revisionese. So the company will come to different KOLs, different uh, key opinion leaders or different centers that have a volume and try and recruit. So that's one way to do studies. And then the last one is the implant companies for the studies I mentioned, you have to have the volume, right? You have to have, be an institution or a surgeon that has enough volume that you can contribute to a study. You can recruit enough to be a site. Great. Yeah, that's very helpful. All right. So, you know, I think one question someone said, you know, the AUKUS surveys are great. You know, a lot of results currently seem limited, though, by the low response rates. I guess first we were hoping you could talk a little bit about what the AUKUS survey process is, how the surveys get selected, how people submit them, and then a little bit about how you think we might improve response rates in the future. So we have an application. You can see that in our application, uh, in the site, in the website. There's uh, twice a year you can submit an application for a survey. It gets reviewed by the research committee and we select uh, the one survey that we think is the best. And then we actually work with the people, mainly me and Thorsten, the chair and vice chair, to make it better. And then we also help them with writing it up and publishing it. Response rate on surveys are never great. I think we got to 30-something in the last one, and that's like the best ever. Because it also depends who you send it to. Are those people even opening the emails, right? It's not people that are expecting it in 30 percent answer. So I'm not sure how to make it better. We're thinking of making it more visible during the annual meeting or the spring meeting and putting it on the board so people can answer while they're sitting there like we do with other things. Maybe we'll have a higher response rate. Trying to figure it out. Are there certain characteristics of the surveys that tend to get accepted? Like, have you noticed trends in the ones that you choose or are there sort of all different types, all different? They're all different topics, but it's something that we think is interesting. Something that we all look and say, oh, I want to know the answers to those questions. I want to see what people do or think. Yeah, it feels like the response numbers need to be higher in order to make them significant. I think that a lot of them are questions that many people are interested in. And it's hard to engage people, it seems, via the internet because everyone gets so much information sent to them. I wonder if there's a way to engage like texting platform, some other way that we could find that people don't just ignore it because that's what I do with all my emails. Have you considered a gift card raffle? (laughs) Everybody loves a raffle. Exactly what orthopedic surgeons uh... (laughs) are. They want that $5 Target gift card. But no, I like the idea, though, of the annual meeting, because when we're all captive in that room doing the practice pattern surveys, right, those are the ones that we can publish year after year because everyone's stuck in the big room answering. So maybe there's a way to incorporate that in somehow. I don't know. Because in the big room. Yeah, exactly. You just got to trap everybody in a room and make them do a survey. And then give them $10 to target. And then give them, no, not, we don't give everybody, it's a raffle. You have the, the possibility of a $10 gift card. Well, now that we solved that problem. Uh, yeah, I think the last one that, you know, I wanted to bring up was reviewing journal articles and reading a lot of journal articles. It always strikes me how much of orthopedic research is retrospective studies and not just retrospective, but many are small retrospective studies. And obviously there's always that drive to publish if you're in academics and you want to get a match in residency and we have to find research for the medical students. But it does seem like we should focus more of our energy on higher quality, multi-center 
randomized or at least large retrospective studies. What do you think the role is for research going forward in orthopedics? How can we get people to do more high quality research instead of just publishing higher numbers of papers? I think also high quality research is becoming a little bit problematic. Uh, I'm running a randomized control trial on irrigations, you know, the betadine, vanco powder, all those different options. Our infection rates are so small that we uh, we did a power with using high-risk patients and we got to 13,000 patients. When's the last time anybody completed a randomized study with 13,000 patients? And the things that interest all of us, infection, DVTs, all these low, lower currency incident things, right? It's even dislocation, you know, big heads, dual mobility. I, I'm participating in the randomized study that's run by Rush looking at dual mobility versus non-dual mobility heads. Think about what the rate of dislocation is and what the number that you have to get to show any real, real statistical difference. And as you try and play the statistics and get smaller numbers, then you can question how strong the study is. Uh, when you read the randomized studies with 24 versus 24 patients in different pharmacology studies. So, uh, and it's very hard to control a lot of the things. You know, another st studies looking at pain. There's so many variables that's so, so hard to control for a study to show. And our pain levels are not that high. And patients go home the same day, so length of stay doesn't exist anymore. So, and patients go home, it's hard to measure their pain because they have to count pills and go trust them to do that. So we have to find the questions and figure out how to ask them and figure out what makes a difference for us. We change a thousand implants. We have so many companies making implants. No one's doing randomized studies on one implant versus another. So I think uh, we're learning more from doing studies, I think, that they're not randomized, but I call them like succession prospective studies. You have a thousand patients and then you change one thing in your practice. And you, that's a real life change, right? There's variations within, but we have protocols and you just change one thing in your protocol. For us, for example, we're going to present in ACAS. We, had, we only used to give one dexamethasone dose and we didn't change anything. And we started giving a second dexamethasone dose in PACU. And we saw some changes in uh, how patients and things that we can measure. So it's not randomized, but we have big numbers because we didn't have to randomize the patient and consent them and see who can come in and inclusion, exclusion. We just ran six months and then another six months when after the change. And I think those are easier studies to do. And those are things that people can do in private practice, especially if you're well protocolized and everything is the same. You just change one thing and see what happens. What role do you think AUKUS has in sort of promoting that in the future? Do you think they can get centers together or provide funding or how do you think that's going to work? So ACAS provides funding there are through our fair grant twice a year, $50,000, overall $200,000 of funding every year. ACAS also has in the research under the research uh, committee, we have the research consortium. People can go online, fill up the application and you can just throw ideas and reach out through there. And then we try and have a consortium of people that are interested and want to put their heads together or put their patients together and uh, do some joint research. You know, that helps from people that are not connected to more peer groups that do research together and want to try and get in. That was the whole idea there. I can't say that we had an, a wave of people coming onto the consortium and filling it out, but we try to have, have a really detailed questionnaire there to really figure out what that person can do and what he's capable of instead of overloading or demanding something from someone that's interested, but he can't achieve it. And any thoughts about the nested studies in the AJRR? That was brought up, I think, by the Mayo Clinic. And that was something I found really interesting. If there was a way to just be doing these 
RCTs that are automatically getting data collected because we're already collecting all this data. Something you that the research committee has thought about, or is that kind of just in early stages? They just mentioned it. I think what I I personally I'm just learning what I can actually do with the AJR data, uh, the different levels and how many. As you want more data from AJR or deeper data, you find that the numbers become extremely small. Our registry is not as robust as we think. It's robust in the high level of what implant was placed. But if you want proms or you want outcomes or you want complications or you want follow-up, it really shrinks. Mm -hmm. And then you try and write a paper and the reviewers ask, wait, how does the AGR data only have 300 patients that have these outcomes when there's a, a bank of 100,000 because only 300 have the data in there? So I think AGR, I'm not sure yet how to use it well. There's people more versed in the AGR than me. Yeah, the granular data is not collected at a high level, unfortunately, yet. There are state databases that are good. There's CMS database. And New York State has the the Sparks, and some other states have it. So if you want to use databases and do some uh, mining in there, there are a few out there that are good. Thanks so much for having a great discussion about research. Now we're going to transition into some more rapid-fire questions about your practice and how you do things, because our listeners want to know. So, Dr. Schwarzkopf, what is your total hip approach? I do now a new approach that's named the STAR approach. Superior transverse anatomic repair. That's how uh, I named it. I didn't name the STAR approach. It was named by one of my colleagues in uh, Greece, Thessaloniki. I did a rotating fellowship with him from the Hip to Hip Society traveling fellowship. His name is Dr. Eleftherius. And it's kind of a combination of the super pat Norden approach and the mini posterior approach. The idea is also to see if you can preserve the performance when you do it. But in the end, I don't go into the pilot and ask him how he's going to fly the plane. I choose the airline and the pilot. I really think that all approaches are equal in good hands. All of them can have good uh, outcomes. What are your indications for dual mobility? Revisions, almost all revisions, if I can. Other option is patients at high risk, but I do need an acetabulum in a certain size. I try not to use uh, dual mobility when I have to use a 22 head because uh, many of the companies either have only a zero option or a plus four. I find that if you really need offset, it's a very powerful tool as well to avoid dislocation. Who do you consider high risk for a primary? So people with hip spine problems, fused spine are at risk. AVN could be at risk. People that come in are still very flexible with uh, good range of motion, even though they have severe arthritis or at high risk. How are you measuring that in clinic for the patient's preoperative range of motion? I lie them down on their bed. I flex their hip. I internally rotate, externally rotate, abduct <laughs> and abduct. And I ask them which activities they're doing. Some of them come and uh, do a child pose. So I'm having pain doing a child pose. I try and not operate on people coming in in sports gear and Lululemon without a cane. I'm not sure they actually need a tall hip if I need to find it on MRI. So I I like really seeing uh, patients that have debilitating arthritis. They actually have the best outcome. Yes, that, that was kind of my question is how much internal rotation does somebody need where you're like, oh, this is so much I'm worried and wanted you to do a mobility. So, you know, some, you know, you do have the patients. So taking that a step backwards, patients with dysplasia that have severe arthritis still have a tremendous amount of range of motion compared to our OA patients. So those usually fall. Well, you, sometimes you see the younger females with their skinny with great range of motion and DDH, but bone on bone arthritis and pain those are going to be at high risk because they also may lose offset because you're going to 
bring the hip down and in so they get some length but the you may not you're going to be chasing their that that subluxated offset that they had unfortunately they're the ones who are likely to have a 44 cup so yeah what about post-traumatic arthritis are you putting in dual mobility for those patients people who have had previous acetabular fractures uh post nailing so it, it all depends if i get the size yeah i don't see these are also usually older patients the ones with nails and so forth so i'm not afraid of any of the possible downsides of dual mobility of uh, two surfaces of wear that people talk about. So if that talon is big enough, I'm, I'm not afraid of putting it in. Just have to remember that with dual mobility, you can only get to a limited neck length. So sometimes if you need more offset, a lateralized liner and a plus A12 head may give you much more stability than just giving a head that's a few millimeters bigger. What are you using for total knee bearing surfaces? Uh, I'm a CR surgeon, so I use uh, CR or a medial dish. The company I use now has a medial dish, so that's my kind of go-to now. What about fixation? Cement, uncemented? How do you decide? So I, I started doing uncemented. I still do it only in young patients, um, but it's it's not uh, it's it's a it's a small part of my practice now. It's growing, but it's a small part. As you say, robots, navigation, none of the above. So I, I navigate all my hips and knees, and I also use a robot for knees. What are what wound closure are you using for primaries? A very good and tight, watertight wound closure. What are you uh, using for this? Are you using barb <laughs> suture? I'm, I'm, I'm using a barb running uh, monofilament type suture on the top with dermabond. And what about for the arthrotomy? Are you using running barb? Um, a, a running strong barb suture with a little bit of augmentation of number one vicos. And what about for revisions? Same thing. With infections, I, with infections, I don't use vitals. <laughs> I was going to say, how yeah. many of those have you done personally, Jenna? I think the first time I was like, <laughs> wait, you want me to close this revision with a running barbed monocle? But now that's what I do. So. Hmm. And then you, you don't have to take out staples or nylons right. in the office in these big incisions. And they, they don't drain because it's sealed. Any indication in your opinion for extended oral antibiotic prophylaxis, either primaries, revisions? Yeah, or... I think so. You have patients that are really at high risk. So we give that. You know, Meningini's data is interesting. He showed his data and you can't argue on the data. I'm sure if I give a month of antibiotics, it'd be better or a year or so. I'm not sure what does it mean. Uh, on the other hand, I'm doing a study run by Duke that was sponsored by uh, uh, Fair Grant and then sponsored by ORIF, looking at one dose versus 24 hours, and it also doesn't have a difference. So it could be that within the first 24 hours, it doesn't matter if you give one dose or three doses, but then if you give seven days for people that have some risk, maybe you're stopping something. Are we just suppressing it and it shows up in a year? But Meningini showed a nice paper that up to a year he, he sees the benefits and so forth. So you know, we always want to give it less antibiotics. And now we're going on the other side and say, let's give more antibiotics. So the question is, maybe it's enough to just put antibiotics in our cement. Does that do the same trick or not? Do we need more than that? If we cover our implants with antibiotics in the future, will that be enough? Are you putting antibiotics in your total knees? All of my total knees have antibiotic cement. And all of my cemented hips, the same. So only my plastic hips don't have it. Are you are you adding the antibiotics yourself or are you using the pre-added? For the knees, the pre-added. For the hips, we don't have the low viscosity one, so I add. It's kind of interesting because the thought is that maybe it's not 
everyone should get no antibiotics or everyone should get prophylaxis. Maybe it's going to be a patient specific thing. You know, some people need nothing and some people need a week. Well, and that, that's always my question. What is high risk, right? The, all these, and the papers have different definitions too. So it's hard to decide and how to determine, you know, who is supposed to get that. I think people with history of infections, uh, people post-traumatic with multiple wounds, healing problems, you know, bad metabolism. I'm not sure every obese is high risk. Obese is high risk by said, but if you, if you just look at certain obese, then it's probably not as bad. So I think it's much more complex than that. Yeah. Hip society or knee society, which one's better? They're both great. I'm a member of both, so I, I can't take sides. <laughs> I really catch him off guard with that one. I do. I was trying to, I was trying to get you. <laughs> Thank you so much to Dr. Schwarzkopf for joining us. You can find links to the articles discussed in this episode, as well as information on how to join the Young Arthroplasty Group at ahks.org. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.